You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Hey, hey, uh, welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast. Today on the show, we are joined by Gad Sad. Dr. Gad Sad is a professor of marketing, public intellectual, holder of the Concordia University Research Chair in Evolutionary Behavioral Sciences and Darwinian Consumption, and an advisory fellow at the Center for Inquiry. Professor Sad's latest book, The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense, takes a wonderful look at some of the ideas which are so prominent in society today. We discuss the granddaddy of idea pathogens, as Gad calls it, postmodernism. We discuss the fear of biology, why in this era of social justice warriors you need to become like the honey badger, the war on science, truth and reason, that we all have a stake in, and much, much more. As a reminder, this interview is in video format, along with all of our other recent interviews, which are now live on our YouTube channel. So if you prefer to watch the interview rather than listen to it, head over to YouTube, type in Freedom Pact. Hit the like, share, and subscribe button. <laughs> so, guys, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with the Gadfather himself, Professor Gad Sad. Professor Sad, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I should apologize to all your viewers. As I told you, I think privately, I'm having a very nasty cough and cold. I hope it's not COVID. I don't think it is COVID. Uh, and so if I'm a bit more subdued than usual, my apologies. No problem. No problem at all. We, we, we completely understand. So I figured before we jump into your fantastic new book, The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense, I guess with the news yesterday about Donald Trump, the question on everybody's mind at the minute, who would be a better replacement, Paul Pogba or Mesut Ozil? Uh, for those of you who don't know, these are two of the players that I not despise the most. I mean, I do despise them the most for different reasons. Uh, Ozil, because he's just this pouty, you know, pretty boy that does nothing on the field. You know, I've known players when I was 15 who were who had substantially more presence than this guy does. And Paul Pogba, Pogba, he's kind of the strutting guy who can fade in and out. When I first told everybody that Manchester United had made a mistake in bringing him on, everybody said, oh, no, but that's just because he's young, Professor Saad. He's going to mature into his, his potential. Well, it's three, four years later. I'm still waiting for that maturation. <laughs> We're all waiting, Paul. <laughs> so, but I don't want to waste any more time talking about Paul Pogba. Um, what are idea pathogens and why the parasite analogy? Yes. So as an evolutionary psychologist, one of the things that is within my toolbox of you know, approaches is the field called comparative psychology. Comparative psychology is when you compare human cognition to other animals. So if you want to study some decision-making process, you might compare how we solve a particular task to say chimpanzees because we are obviously animal cousins. So because of my penchant to always look at analogies and homologies across species, I came across the field of neuroparasitology as I was trying to think about all these, why do these bad ideas develop? And so neuroparasitology is the field that looks at how parasites can infect one specific organ of a whole you know, body, the, its brain. Right? Because a tapeworm, for example, can go into your intestines. That's also a parasite, but it's not a neuroparasite. And so neuroparasites are really incredible because it's, it's akin to science fiction because once they go into the host's brain, they can completely rewire its behaviors to suit its interests, but to the detriment of the host. So the classic example, but there are many others, is Toxoplasma gondii is a parasite that when it infects the 
brains of mice, they lose their innate fears of cats. They actually become sexually attracted to the cat's urine, which is not a good thing for a mouse to exhibit as a preference. And so I take this idea and I basically argue that humans can suffer from another class of brain parasites. I call them bad idea pathogens. In other words, there are parasitic ideas that lead us instead of to the cat, they lead us to the abyss of infinite lunacy and hence the parasitic mind. And I think we are completely drowning in them at the minute. Um, so I figured that before we jump into the spe to specific examples, um, I figured we should give some context about you. So please feel free to fact check me here. But to my knowledge, you broke free from civil war at a young age in Lebanon as a young man. Um, so surely, you know, you're an accomplished professor, a renowned academic. Surely the West would be a safe haven. And, you know, like similar to J.K. Rowling, there would be, you know, no need really to comment on these things. What, what has compelled you to do so, Gad? Right. No, that's a great question. So in chapter one of The Parasitic Mind, I exactly answer your question because I demonstrate that my personal background in another, it has really perfectly situated me to really tackle many of these idea pathogens. So I come from Lebanon, as you said. I'm a Lebanese Jew. We were part of the last remaining Jewish community in Lebanon. Uh, we doggedly did not want to leave our homeland. But then once the civil war broke out, it became very precarious to be Jewish in Lebanon. And so it was really important to leave. And so I was exposed to the worst manifestation of identity politics uh, in my childhood in Lebanon. Then I moved to Canada, got my training, studied, went to the US, came back, became a professor. And then I saw that there was a second war. So I thought I had left war behind with the Lebanese Civil War, but there was a war on reason, a war on truth, a war on science, on common sense across the, the university campuses. And so there are two, really two great wars that I have faced. Now, also being an evolutionary psychologist allowed me to be a participant early in my scientific career in some of these wars of idea pathogens because I was trying in my scientific work to introduce evolutionary biology into understanding human behavior in general and consumer behavior in particular. And most of my social science colleagues thought that this was heretical. You, you, they thought that you, know, you could use biology to study the mosquito and your dog and the zebra, but how dare you use biology to study human behavior. We transcend our biology. We are above our biology. So I already started seeing these imbecilic idea pathogens in my scientific career, but regrettably, they've now seeped their way into every fabric of our societies. Mm, okay. So I think this is a perfect um, example to just, let's just jump straight into it. So what would be an example of, as you say, a parasitic idea? Sure. So the, the, the granddaddy of them all would probably be postmodernism because in a sense, it is the perfect uh, virus of intellectual terrorism or nihilism because it basically posits that there are no objective truths. Everything is constrained by subjectivity, by the personal biases of whomever is doing the exploration. Now, the problem is that scientists do wake up every day thinking that there are universal truths to be discovered. Now, something that is true 300 years ago, scientifically might be updated and no longer be true. So, we, so in science, we talk about provisional truths. So when we say truth, we don't mean that it is revealed truth as would be the case in, science, in religion. But we do wake up every day thinking, well, there is a universal human nature that we might wanna study as evolutionary psychologists. Well, postmodernism completely shatters that idea. And so I compare postmodernists to the 9-11 uh, guys. So the 9-11 folks, because they were zealots of their ideology, flew planes onto buildings. Well, postmodernists fly planes of bullshit onto our edifices of reason and slowly destroy everything that has made, you know, the scientific method and, 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 and you know, other such epistemological approaches completely irrelevant because, hey, it's all subjective. I'll, I'll give you maybe a quick story. Uh, some of your viewers might not be familiar with it, others may, but it's still worth hearing if they know it. In 2002, uh, one of my doctoral students had just defended his dissertation and uh, we had gone out for a celebratory dinner, myself, my wife, him, and his, his date for the evening, somebody that he was dating. 
And he had warned me ahead of time that that particular individual, the date in question, was a graduate student in cultural anthropology, postmodernism, and feminism. So sort of a holy, holy trinity of bullshit. The dark triad. <laughs> the dark triad. And so he was sort of telling me, hey, let's, let's not get too heavy. Let's have fun. I said, oh, you got it. Mum's the word. I'm going to be on my best behavior, which of course was nonsense. I wasn't going to be on my best behavior. And so about halfway through the dinner, I very gingerly, very politely said, oh, you know, I hear that you are a postmodernist. Do you mind if, so there are no universal truths, correct? Yes, none. Okay, well, do you mind if I propose what I think are universal truths and then you can tell me how you would think otherwise? She was, yes, absolutely, go for it. Uh, okay, well, within Homo sapiens, only women bear children. Is that not a human universal? Is that not true? Can we not take that to the bank? Absolutely not. What a stupid thing to say. Oh, really? How's that? Well, there is a Japanese tribe off some island where within their mythological narrative, within their folklore, it is the men who bear children. So by you restricting it to the biological realm, that's how you keep us barefoot and pregnant. Once I recovered from my mini stroke, I then said to her, okay, uh, how about uh, we take a less contentious example, one that's not as laden with you know, animus as saying that only women bear children. She goes, go for it. Well, is it true that from the vantage point of anywhere on earth, sailors have relied since time immemorial that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, to which she, there she used what's called deconstructionism. She said, well, what do you mean by east and west? Those are just labels. And what do you mean by sun, that which you call the sun, I call dancing hyena, to which I answered, well, the dancing hyena rises in the east and sets in the west. And then she said, well, I don't play these label games. So the reason why I always repeat the story, because she wasn't an anomaly. She wasn't an outlier. She was just aping what, you know, 30, 40 years of this kind of bullshit training, training has caused people to do, which is reject that there is something called the sun, reject that women bear children and so on. So it's not a good epistemological trajectory to take. So that would be the top idea pathogen. If you have time and you want to discuss others, I'd be happy to. Absolutely. I would love to jump into some more, but let's just pick up on that specific point because that is a, that conversation, which you talk about legendary conversation. I've used some of those lines myself and I would love to pick up on this sort of reason why we are so vulnerable to these pseudo intellectual ideas. So what is the sort of root and how much of this is a desire to free ourselves from reality? Right. That, that's, that's exactly what I say in the book that they share in common. So each of these idea pathogens, so whether it be postmodernism or militant feminism or uh, social constructivism or identity politics, what they share in common are, is really two, two things. Number one is they all start off with a somewhat noble goal. So in other words, the goal is not originally to just blow up the whole edifice of reason reason. They really are trying to pursue some laudable objective. The problem, though, is that in their pursuit of this laudable objective, they murder and rape truth, right? So you should be able to both chew and chew gum and walk at the same time. Well, they don't, right? So that's, that's the first thing that they have in common. The second thing that they have in common is that, as you said, is they are all committed to free us from the shackles of reality. So postmodernism frees us from truth, right? It's my truth. There is no capital truth, right? It's my experience, my lived experience. All these bullshit terms that you now hear all come from 40 years of indoctrination within postmodernism. Uh, radical or radical or militant feminism frees us from the shackles of biology, right? Social constructivism does a similar thing, right? Because social constructivism is the idea that we are all born as empty slates. There, there are no biological imperatives that we come endowed into the world with, and we're born with equal potentiality. So all of us, if, if we nurture our kids, probably could potentially have Lionel Messi or Michael Jordan. And the, and the only reason why your kid didn't grow up to be Lionel Messi is maybe because you hugged him too much or didn't hug him enough or gave him one too many Big Macs or not one enough Big Macs. So there's always some environmental cause that didn't instantiate the full potential of your child. Well, that's a very hopeful message. It's great. So you mean all of my spawn could be Lionel Messi? That's wonderful. Well, they can't, right? Oh, they can with me because I'm a great soccer player, <laughs> but to most people who don't have my supreme athletics, then it like someone like Ozil or Pogba, uh, they can't be Lionel Messi. So 
So again, each of these idea pathogens are start off as noble. They start off by freeing us from the shackles of reality, but the downstream effect is they completely destroy reason. I would love to pick up on this and um, say that example you give, Blair. And if we delve into some other reasons besides postmodernism. So I am a complete believer in the evolutionary theory. On this show, we've had a number of evolutionary professors, yourself, Professor David Buss, Brett Weinstein, uh, William von Hippel. So let's take an example, say something like, when I tell a feminist that men have an evolutionary preference for women with a hourglass figure, 0.68 to 0.72, um, the reply that I always get is, oh, well, if we bring more awareness to this, if we shed light on it, if we shine a torch on these, on these, um, on these evolutionary adaptions we have, then, then we won't have to worry about these things. So I'd love to turn this to you and say, to what extent can we transcend our biology? Yes, no, that's a great question. Uh, one of the detractors uh, of evolutionary psychology in general and evolution, evolutionary theory also, is that they argue that they don't like these theories because they are biologically deterministic and nothing could be further from the truth. Most phenomena operate in an exquisite interaction between our genes and our environments. That's why this is, this is called the interactionist perspective. So the idea that because you explain the evolutionary roots of something, it implies that you are just the robotic executor of that evolutionary modality, if you like, is simply demonstrating that you know nothing about biology. Uh, so, for example, even genes themselves are turned on or off as a function of environmental inputs. So, the, and, I'll, and I'll give you another great powerful metaphor that kind of will, will uh, solidify this point. So, I use what's called the, the cake metaphor. So, if I, sh I want to talk to you about nature versus nurture, right? So, and show you that it's really, in a sense, a false dichotomy. So if I show you all of the ingredients that are used in making a cake, so the flour, the eggs, the butter, uh, you know, and so on, uh, before I bake the cake, you can point to each of the ingredients. Once I bake the cake, it now becomes an inextricable mix of all of those individual ingredients. If I now told you, please point to the butter, please point to the sugar, you're, you wouldn't be able to. Well, that's the same thing for most of who we are. Most of the traits that you and I might be interested in discussing are an inextricable mix of our nature and our nurture. So for example, if we look at, say, the drive for status. So around the world, if you ask women, what, is the, you know, what are the attributes that they look for most in men, they will say you know, so, social status. Now, social status might be measured differently in different cultural ecosystems. In one culture, it might be how many heads of cattle, cattle I have, and in another culture, it might be how good a hunter I am, and another culture is if I have an Ivy League degree, right? In another culture, it might be how many zeros I have in the bank account. But in no culture, the women say, give me an apathetic, lazy, submissive guy. My God, I go into a sexual frenzy. You haven't yet found that culture. If one of your viewer finds it, please email me, I'll make you famous. But you won't find it, because it doesn't exist. Well, the fact that all men seek that universal drive of obtaining status doesn't imply that we are deterministic because each of us will instantiate that goal in different ways. Some of us will become Lionel Messi. Some of us will become great actors or professors or business people. So there isn't a singular way by which we could instantiate that goal. That demonstrates to you that the fact that you explain the evolutionary roots of something doesn't imply that you are a biologically deterministic robot of those evolutionary drives. I love that, man. I love that. So we've touched on postmodernism. We've touched on some social constructivism. What about identity politics? What, what are your yeah. thoughts on identity politics? Can we go there? Yeah, identity politics, I call it a, an affront to human dignity, a cancer to, to human dignity. Because, again, it starts off with a quasi-noble goal. Hey, if there are institutional forces that have led some people to not fully participate in whichever endeavor, then of course we should, as, as good people, seek to remove these. But that 
demonstrates the tension or the conflation between equality of opportunities and equality of outcomes. Equality of opportunities is something that we should seek. Equality of outcomes is idiotic, right? To, to use the, the football analogy, to go back to it, uh, in, since 1930, when the World Cup of men's soccer started, only eight countries have ever won the World Cup. Well, that seems a bit racist. How come Namibia has never won it? It seems quite Islamophobic. How come no Islamic countries never won it? It seems anti-Semitic. Israel is yet to win it, right? And so on and so forth, right? So you don't necessarily expect in a competition for there to be a perfect representation of whichever demographic trait you want to focus on. That's contrary to one of the most fundamental protective belts of an enlightened society, which is you, you elevate the individual. That's classical liberalism. It's, I am Gatsad before I am Lebanese Jew. Lebanese Jew is one part of who Gatsad is, but when I, when I present myself to the world, I am not speaking on behalf of anybody other than Gatsad. So when you judge me and all my uh, qualities and any faults that I may have, well, that's what you should judge me by. So identity politics throws that out the window. So how does it manifest itself in, in say, academia? Although we could discuss it in other cases. Well, now we have what I call, and I discussed this in the Pacific one, uh, we have what, what I call the Dai religion. Dai stands for diversity, inclusion, and equity. So we no longer, in, an, in a domain where everything should be defined by excellence, we no longer as, attribute excellence or give professorships or even chaired professorships based on the weight of your dossier, but we'd give it based on whether you hold certain immutable traits or not. That's grotesque. Now, it, 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 it behooves me to understand how these administrators, these czars of equity, how they actually fail to see that, right? Because nobody, for example, if you look at the, the, the number of uh, folks who have won the Boston Marathon over the last 30 years, let me summarize it very quickly for you. Kenya, 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 Ethiopia, Kenya, 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 Kenya. So how come there we don't proclaim that there is a problem, right? Well, because for whatever reason, folks who come from Kenya, and there are various arguments as to why that might be the case, are more likely to succeed in that particular sport, but they don't win, say, in the 100 meters, right? They have a different type of morphology. So so the idea that we should be always trying to, let's look at Princeton's math department, and if they don't have the requisite number of black mathematicians, aha, it must be systemic racism. It's grotesque, and hopefully it will end one day soon. Does the difficulty with issues like this come where, at a lot of these issues, at a base level, as you say, there is a quasi-noble pursuit of a better society, but does the issue then come when we sacrifice truth in the pursuit of that? Well, that's it. That's, that's the old thing when I said, you know, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. Net, so this, by the way, uh, speaks to a tension in answering your question between two ethical systems. Uh, one is called deontological ethics. The other one is called consequentialist ethics. So a deontological statement would be, it is never okay to lie. That's an absolute truth. A consequentialist ethical position would be, well, it's okay to lie uh, if you're trying to protect someone's feelings. So if your spouse says, do I look fat in these jeans? And if you want to have a long marriage, maybe you lie and you say you look more beautiful than you've ever had in the past, okay? The reality is we're, we're, we both, I mean, we all are at times deontological and at times consequentialist. Only, you know, religious zealots and so on, the, the most dogmatic of people are absolutist in all cases. That doesn't make sense. So, so we're wired to navigate through both systems. The question, though, is in which context should you activate which system? Now, when it comes to matters of truth, you should be deontologically driven. In other words, I never sacrifice a millimeter of truth in the pursuit of social justice. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't believe in true social justice, not, not blue-haired social justice words. True social justice uh, 
of course, I'm, I'm about as liberal as they come. So I could be completely for trans rights, yet recognize that a 270-pound two, male who's six foot five, who decides that he now self-identifies as a female, should not be competing in boxing with biological females because, bruh, I'm a woman, right? So I can, again, chew gum and walk at the same time. Yes, I'm all for trans rights. No, I'm not for the murder of truth and rejection of reality in the pursuit of those rights. With your parasite analogy, um, this virus, it must track back to somewhere. Do you have any theories as to where it may come from? <laughs> so if we're talking about these specific idea pathogens, they all, I mean, most came around 40, 45 years ago, uh, usually in the humanities and some of the social sciences, but a few of them can, be, can go back to almost 100 years ago. So let me give you an example of a, a, a older parasite of the human mind. So for example, biophobia, which is one of the idea pathogens that I discuss in the book, uh, the, the, the fear of using biology to explain human affairs, right? Uh, well, that really comes from uh, cultural anthropologists. Started with uh, a gentleman by the name of Franz Boas, uh, a professor of anthropology, I believe at Columbia University, you know, about 80, 90 years ago, uh, where he, he and then sub, some of his subsequent students most famously Margaret Mead, which I can talk about in a second, they wanted to create a new understanding of human nature or ra rather of, of, of human behavior that abdicated biology. And the reason for that was that they noticed that Darwinian principles when placed in the wrong hands can result in nefarious outcomes. So uh, British, since this is a British show, British, uh, class elitists argued, hey, it's a Darwinian struggle between the classes. We're the upper class. You're the losers in the lower class. So if you don't get healthcare or education, so what? That's a Darwinian struggle. That became known as social Darwinism. It has nothing to do with Darwinian theory. I mean, literally nothing. Uh, Nazis came along and said, hey, it's a Darwinian struggle between uh, races. We're the Aryans. You're the Jews. Hey, you lose out in, in the grand battle. So what's wrong with killing you? Eugenicists said, hey, we want to purify the gene pool hey, gay people, how about we sterilize you so that you don't you know, uh, extend your genes in the gene pool? Hey, that's Darwinian. Well, none of these things have anything to do with Darwinian theory, but in the same way that we don't get rid of physics because bra atomic bomb, well, by the same logic, we don't get rid of biology because some idiots could misuse it. So these noble anthropologists wanted to create a new edifice of understanding where we remove biology from understanding. So that became known as cultural relativism. Who are we to judge other cultures? If other cultures cut off the clitorises of little girls, well, who are you to say disgusting, vile, white, racist, imperial, white man, that these, cult these noble cultures of color are not doing the right thing, right? So in this case, that idea pathogen started with Franz Boas, you know, about 80, 90, 100 years ago. Uh, but other ones like postmodernism and so on really took off with the, the holy trinity of French bullshitters, Jacques Lacan, Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault, who you know, collectively have had more influence in, in destroying the minds of young people than most other professors that I can think of. Perfect. And I want to jump on to the, how we inoculate our minds from you know, this bullshit. But before I do, um, let me sort of balance the argument and let, let me post the question to you and say, shouldn't, you know, in a free society, shouldn't we let people just have these bad and terrible ideas? Oh, I, I'm not suggesting that uh, a person can't spew imbecilics. As a matter of fact, to, to support what you just said, I'm going to take the most extreme example, uh, one that I often use when people ask me a question similar to what you just said. I'm a free speech absolutist. I, I support the right of Holocaust deniers as a Jewish person who has my own, you know, escape from Jew hatred, genocidal Jew hatred. Uh, I support the right of Holocaust deniers to spew their bullshit. Now, the, the point, though, is that it depends in which context you're allowed to do it. So, for example, when, it, when, when I am tasked with a pedagogic responsibility to come into class and teach a geography class, I can't say that the uh, capital of France is Rio de Janeiro, 
because, uh, bruh, it's my truth, right? There are objective facts. There are objective epistemologies by which we understand the world. So depending on the context, you, you may not actually have the right to spew nonsense. But my point is not that these, got, these idea pathogens can't exist. The, the problem comes where the, in the desire to spread these idea pathogens, the, the intellectual fascists then try to stop me from arguing against your idea pathogens. That's, I don't mind for you to step into the ring of ideas and let the best man win. But once you start saying, no, 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 if, if Gad Saad comes in and lectures about evolutionary psychology, some of, the, some of the students might have an anxiety attack. So we have to deplatform him, deplatform him. Well, then we can't allow that. By the way, it, it has only happened to me once, but Richard Dawkins was just deplatformed at Trinity, Dublin, at Trinity College Dublin for exactly the reasons that we're saying, right? Yeah, terrible, terrible. So how do we inoculate ourselves? I mean, how do I know if I'm effect, infected with these bullshit ideas and what do I do about it? Yes, beautiful. So there are two, there's one, one answer I'm going to give you is a very sort of, if you forgive me, a long-winded epistemological exercise. And the other one is just a call to actions. The, the former is chapter seven in the book and the latter is chapter eight. So let, let me start with the simpler ones of chapter eight. So uh, one of the things I talk about is, you know, activate your inner honey badger. So the idea be, is that uh, a honey, and I'm, and I'm gonna come back in a second, how do we inoculate ourselves? But now I wanna explain how everybody has a stake in the battle for truth. So honey badgers, for those of you who don't know, are astonishingly fierce creatures. They, they are the size of a small dog, but because of their ferocity, uh, they could hold at bay, you know, six adult lions. And you could go on, on YouTube and see six lions coming to, to, to kill a honey badger. The honey badger goes completely wacko and the lions are literally befuddled. They, they can't understand this kind of ferocity and they say, okay, I don't want a part of this. And so one of the things that I argue is be a honey badger in defending your principles. If you truly have principles that are, are well-structured, then nothing should move. And that's why, you know, I, when, when someone comes after me, you better come correct, as we say, because I'm coming after you tenfold harder, right? It's just endless. Once you enter my radar, if you insult me in an inappropriate way, there is no limit to how far I will go to bring you down. And usually I get people to close down their accounts. I don't do it to be malicious, but I do it so that the audience sees exactly what I preach, right? So, so in chapter eight, I have these types of, uh, you know, calls to action. But let me answer your, your, your original question, which is how do we inoculate ourselves against bad ideas? And how do we build an argument that hopefully is veridical and true? And so for that, I use an epistemological tool, which I call nomological networks of cumulative evidence. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a mouthful. So let me explain how you go about doing that. So if you think back of Charles Darwin, when he was developing his, uh, the proof for his you know, theory of natural selection, uh, he didn't do it by running a study with 25 undergrads at Ohio State University. He didn't do it by conducting a survey with 200 convenient samples, right? What, the way he did it was through an assiduous collection of data over several decades, stemming from many, many different disciplines paleontology, geology, animal husbandry, comparative morphology, and on and on and on. So that when you put all these distinct lines of evidence, it became incontrovertible that he was correct. And for 150 plus years, people have been trying to falsify him and they haven't been able to. So I use this epistemological tool, although he didn't call it that, but I independently, when I was trying to fight against my social scientist colleagues, and I was trying to think, well, how can I get these folks to actually see that this evolutionary explanation makes sense? I started thinking along those lines. And so let me give you a concrete example of how you would build such a network uh, so that your audience gets a sense of what I mean. Earlier, you mentioned the, uh, the fact that men prefer women that have a particular waist to hip ratio. The argument from evolutionary psychology is that uh, the, the hourglass figure, which is uh, the waist to hip ratio should be between 0.68 to 0.72, is an evolved preference. In other words, in the same way that in countless other sexually reproducing species, typically the female will choose a male along certain morphological features. Those 
preferences don't come out of accident. They come because they are a evolutionary solution to a particular problem, okay? So the female crab picks the crab, the male crab that has the biggest claw. He keeps showing that, you know, all these different males will show their claw and she picks the one, the biggest one, not because there is a patriarchal crab conspiracy, conspiracy to, you know, right? Because there's an evolutionary reason why that particular size of claw would be advantageous from a reproductive perspective. Okay, so why would men have evolved a preference for the hourglass figure? Well, so now I want to build a nomological network to demonstrate to you that it is absolutely true that that preference is adaptive. Well, I could start with medical data. I could show you that women who exhibit that particular morphological shape are more likely to be fertile and nubile. They're less likely to have medical conditions. As we get older, we, we become less close to that so it's also a sign of nobility and fertility. So that is one box related to medical and you know, fertility issues. Okay, now I can say, can I come up with data from 50 different cultures that are incredibly different from one another? So I can go to the Yanomomo tribe and the Amazon who've never been exposed to Western media and show them a bunch of figurines and tell them which one do you prefer. And I can do that in 50 different countries and show that there is what looks like a universal preference across cultures that are radically different from each other. Okay, so now I've gotten you medical data, fertility data, I've gotten you cross-cultural universal data, but we're only starting the nomological network. I won't go through all of it, but I'll give you enough so that you get the sense. Well, I can get data from art. So I can get figurines from ancient Greece, from ancient e from Egypt, from, uh, from Indian culture, from African culture, spanning 3,000 years, where you actually do a content analysis of the figurines, and you could show that depictions of, be of female beauty adhere to those standards. So now I've not only shown you cross-cultural data, I've shown you cross-temporal data across thousands of years that that preference holds. I'll do one or two more. Uh, and, and then I'll stop. Uh, you can, now you might say, oh, but you know, you're, all of the preferences that you're showing is, is through paper and pencil tasks. You're asking men to rate and circle which woman they like the best. Well, I can take neuroscientific data, brain imaging studies, where I can show men different images of women and then see which image will tickle their pleasure centers the most. So now I've removed the idea that, oh, it's only due to paper and pencil. I leave usually the, the last one because it's the most incredible one. I can take congenitally blind men. So these are men who've never had the gift of sight and I could elicit from them their waist to hip ratio preferences. Now you might say, well, how do you do that? You do it haptically by having them touch different mannequins with different waist to hip ratios. And guess what? They choose the hourglass figure. Now these are men that have never seen before. So they couldn't have been uh, conditioned through social media and through Hollywood images and Elle magazine. So bit by bit, I can build you such an unassailable nomological network that I drown you in your bullshit indignation. And so that at the end of the lecture, you all walk away from the lecture with your tails between your legs. That's exactly how I do the process. And I guess when you build a robust nomological network, like you said, but they, you don't need hysteria, you don't need emotionality, you can just, just bit by bit, just drown them in that information. Perfect, exactly right. And that's what I always say that, uh, uh, so because you said hysteria, so hysteria is your affective system, it's your emotional system, right? In chapter two, I talk about the tension between feelings and thinking. And I argue that in a sense, it's a wrong pitting of these two systems. It's not that humans are reasoning animals or humans are feeling animals. It's that we are both. There are very compelling reasons as to why we've evolved both our cognitive system and our affective system. The trick is to know in which, can, in which context to trigger which system. When I'm walking down an alley and I wanna take a shortcut home and I see four young men loitering, well, I know that through statistical regularities that four young men are probably more dangerous than four elderly women. So my heart will start beating. I might get a bit of an anxious reaction. Well, that's my affective system saying, 
you might want to avoid going in this dark alley when there are four young men loitering. So there's nothing wrong with the affective system in that case. If I'm trying to solve a calculus prob problem, all the affection, affective state in the world is not going to solve the calculus problem if I didn't study the calculus material. So when I'm building this nomological network, I am shutting off my affective system. I'm saying, I really need to convince you of the veridicality of my position. How can I go about doing so? Which by the way, having such an exacting standard in the pursuit of truth causes you to have epistemic humility. So that if you were to ask me right now on the show, uh, what's your position on climate change? Or what's your position on the legalization of marijuana? Well, I'm humble enough to know that I haven't done my homework. I haven't built the requisite nomological network to be able to answer you with the assuredness and swagger that I might answer you in other ways. Therefore, I'm actually quite humble. When I know, I know. And when I don't know, I say, you know what? I, I, I'm afraid I really don't know this. May, let me get back to you with that. I love that, man. And there's one thing which is going through my mind. I mean, you mentioned Charles Darwin, one of my academic heroes. I mean, you there's not a guy really that I can think of which has built more of a robust nomological network. So it makes me think in this day and age, I mean, would Darwin be getting slaughtered on Twitter? Would he be having blue-haired children running around his classroom? How would he fare in 2020? Oh, he'd be done. Are you kidding me? I mean, as a matter of fact, about a month ago, maybe a month or two ago, I uh, satirically decolonized my bookshelf. I don't know if you saw that, that uh, clip. No, I didn't see uh, so now there's this whole new thing of decolonizing everything. Decolonize your mind, decolonize your bookshelf, decolonize uh, science, right? Uh, hashtag science must fall. Uh, so to de decolonize my bookshelf meant that I went through a whole bunch of, so I have a very large personal library and uh, I took, you know, some of the most famous off, you know, I started with actually, on the origin of species with Charles Darwin. And I said that because I wanna create a more equitable ratio of authors in my library, I'm getting rid of some of these really prominent white guys because I simply don't trust them because their skin you is white. So I got rid of bullshit Newton, got rid of bullshit Nazi, Charles Darwin, Rene Descartes was out, Francis Bacon, all those white guys were out. And so I decolonized my bookshelf and in, in doing so, I became a lot more progressive and noble. Well, my satire is always prophetic. I just, basically, I satirize something and then I cross my, my hands and then I wait for reality to catch up to my satire. So a month or two later, it came out that there, I can't remember, I think it's probably in Britain, I can't remember where it is, where they were now trying to cancel Charles Darwin. I don't know why, maybe his uncle's aunt's janitor once spoke to someone who knew, someone who owned slaves and so on. So of course he, he'd be gone in a second, that guy. You are a, a guy that I really admire because you really speak your truth robustly. And I really admire how you're not afraid to um, you don't get drawn into the, to the mobs, uh, you know, the, the, the mobs hysteria. So where do you get the courage from to speak your truth and to the person listening to this now that's afraid to say what they really think? They've built their normological network. How can they get the courage to speak truth to this bullshit? Yes. So several ways they can do that. Number one is they truly have to stop succumbing to what I call the eighth deadly sin, which is cowardice. Uh, the reality is that most people, I, I hate to say it, but it's the truth. Most people are cowardly. Most people succumb to the bystander effect, right? You know, let someone else intervene when the woman is being assaulted in the alley, right? I'll just pretend that I, oh, I, officer, I didn't hear her screaming. That's why I kept walking, right? Well, the reality is when that woman is screaming in the alley, many men might not stop by, but a few men will say, no, 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 I'm not going to tolerate that. I'm stepping in, right? And so I, for example, talk about, to use again a soccer analogy, I say, be the penalty taker, right? Uh, the guy who takes the penalty is not necessarily, I mean, in many cases, it is the best player, but in many cases, it's simply the one who has the testicular fortitude to say, put the, put the responsibility on me, I'll step up. A any professional soccer player can kick a ball from 12 yards out and score, but not everyone has the mental uh, strength to do it, right? So you simply have to nurture that ethos, if you'd like, and hence 
be the penalty taker, activate your inner honey badger. But if I can put it even in a more lofty way, have an exacting standard in your relationship to truth. Now, what do I mean by that? When I go to bed at night, uh, whether I am, I, I, get, I have insomnia or I sleep like a baby will depend on the following. I lay my head on the, on the pillow and I say, have I done everything that I can today to live a true life? So however big my platform is or however small it is, did I walk by the alley while the proverbial girl was being attacked by three guys? If yes, I'm a fraud and I can't live with myself. So if at the end of the day, I always put my head down, I go, you know what? I did my part. It's, it's, it's not, it's not going to change the world, but I know that I live the true life. Then I go on. Well, you really have to foster that sense of exacting personal conduct. Otherwise, it's always easy to diffuse the responsibility onto others, right? So I receive a million emails from all sorts of people, professors, students, staff members, parents of students, all of whom say, I admire you so much, you know, you keep me going, but please don't tell anybody that I said this about you. So they're not even willing to be on the record that they support the guy who is defending their children's right to live free lives. That's how cowardly they are. Well, if most people remain this cowardly, we will lose this battle. If most people suddenly find their testicles, irrespective of whether they're male or female, because we know that sometimes women can have testicles and, and men can have nine inch, or whatever. women can have nine inch penises. Well, once you grow a pair, then we can get rid of these idea pathogens, not in generations, in a few years. I love it, man. I love it. I could talk to you all day, bro. I appreciate we're running out of time. So let me fire through some quick sure. fire questions with you. So at the end of every podcast, we always ask, what have been some of the, um, some of the most impactful books which you've read? Right. How many do you want? Uh, let's go for three. Let's go for three. Okay. So, uh, of course, if I'm gonna, you know, from my evolutionary work, you know, on the origin of species, of course, uh, the adapted mind, which was, excuse me, an early uh, compendium of chapters in an edited book by uh, some of the pioneers of evolutionary psychology. And so in that book, The Adapted Mind, they basically demonstrate how you would apply an evolutionary lens to many different areas, whether it be language acquisition or you know, mate preference a la David Buss and so on. So that was an incredibly powerful book. And the first chapter of that book is an astonishing dismantling of what's called the standard social science model, the, the, the standard social constructivist model. And the, the two people who wrote it are two of the pioneers of evolutionary psychology, Lida Cosmides and uh, John Tooby, who are a husband and wife team at University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, I also loved uh, the more popular David Buss book, The Evolution of Desire, uh, you know, back in 19... I think it was first published in 1994. But another book that I'm going to include here, uh, which is not from my, uh, so much my evolutionary work, but from my desire to be publicly engaged against idea pathogens, is an astonishing book by Paul Gross and Norm Levitt called Higher Superstition. So these guys, way back, you know, more than 20 years ago, were already attacking all of the anti-scientific, anti-reason nonsense that was already starting to respawn across uh, the university campuses. Brilliant book. And by the way, it's, it's one of the, I always say that, you know, I think if I may say with, with, with all due modesty, you know, I have a pretty rich vocabulary, but this is a book where every page, it had me going to the dictionary because there was some word. So if nothing else, this is a book that's going to expand your lexicon by, by many orders of magnitude our audience will love those man my last question uh from me today before i pass it over to you and tell these guys any closing messages where they can get the book where they can connect with you sure. my last question for you today is what makes a life worth living that's great i think uh for me it's it's gonna sound cliche but but it really isn't uh because other people have thought about this question and after a while they're going to come up with a good answer. So I'm going to, in a sense, uh, ape their question to live a purposeful and meaningful life. So what do I mean by that? 
you can instantiate that in many different ways. So it's not only through cerebral pursuits can you do that, but do that. So what do I mean by that? I wake up every day and I'm like a kid in a candy store. I'm, I'm sort of, I wake up and I say, what's on the docket today? Why? Because I can go to infinite intellectual landscapes. I could gadsmack some morons on Twitter if I want to relax. I could write a very fancy academic paper and I've got 25 projects going at the same time. I could start thinking about my next book. I could sit down and talk to a lovely host from Britain on a show and discuss ideas. In other words, I never wake up and I say, ah, oh, life sucks. There's nothing fun for me to do. My work is also my play. I find great meaning. When I receive messages from people, it's, it's not, I, I'm happy because it's a narcissistic thing. Oh, look, so many people love me. It's that I see that people are being touched by my work, that I'm doing something meaningful, that has purpose, that is getting people excited, that in some cases is getting them out of a depression, that's getting them the courage to speak out in class and so on and so forth. So whatever it is that you think you might be able to do to garner that purpose and meaning, seek it because life is incredibly short. And the last thing you want to do is wake up at 57 and say, I, I hated accounting and I only went into it because my dad, with best intentions, said to me that this is a great career that will get you a good job. But I've always wanted to be a, a dancer or a painter or whatever. And so pursue your passion, hopefully with purpose and meaning, and the rest will take care of itself. Man, that's a beautiful answer. On this show, when we first started it, we said that we want to promote humanity's best. And we couldn't think of anyone better than the godfather himself to Thank bring on. So the Parasitic Mind, tell all guys about room where they can connect with you. So uh, I, I have a website that I started a few months ago, gadsad.com, where all things Gadsad are there. You can go check it out. I have a YouTube channel, The Sad Truth, that's been going for about six years now, I think, uh, where I have all kinds of great clips. Some of them, I just turn on the, the, the camera to rail about something, but in others, it'll be like how we're doing now. I invite wonderful guests and I chat with them. I now because a lot of people said they don't want to follow the stuff on YouTube. They want it on podcasts. So recently I started a podcast where I'm slowly migrating all of the content to also have it in audio form. Uh, you can follow me on social media at Gad Saad, S A A D on Twitter. I have a public Facebook page. It's not hard to find me. So get out there and connect with me. I love it. I want to link people to your conversation with David Buss as well, because that was a fantastic oh, conversation. Yes. And he's come up a number of times. This conversation. So I'll link people to that one below. God, this is such a pleasure, man. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Thank you, sir. You were a delight. You gave me the chance to hopefully not be too long with it, but you gave me a chance to explain things. So I truly appreciate uh, the, the chance to speak in your form. Thank you. What an eye-opening episode with Gad. It is clear that we are drowning in bad ideas. We all have a hand in building a better society. And it's about time that we stop being told what to think and what to do and how to dance. If you enjoyed this episode, the best ways you can support the show would be to share our content with a friend, to leave a five-star iTunes review, and to subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you want any more Freedom Pack content, we have a healthy, wealthy and wise newsletter which goes out every Monday morning with the best advice, studies, articles and books that we have found from the previous week. Have a great week and we will see you on Monday.